Hi, everybody. Before I start the show, I just want to remind you that I'm giving away five copies of Cashflow Cookbook, a new book written by last week's guest, Gord Stein. If you're interested in winning a copy, head over to bowhumphreys.com slash giveaway and enter. The giveaway runs until July 31st, 2018. Good luck. This is the Personal Finance Show. Hi, I'm Bo Humphreys, and this is The Personal Finance Show. This episode is about the future of payments in Canada and around the world. How do you pay for things today in your personal and business lives? Cash, check, credit, debit, wire transfers, email money transfers? Maybe you're living in the future and pay for everything with your phone. Have you ever wondered if cash and checks or paper transactions will always be around? Did you know that 875 million checks were written in Canada last year? That might surprise you if you don't even have a checkbook, but many businesses still rely on checks to make all their payments. It provides a paper trail or audit trail if you always have the Canada Revenue Agency on your mind. Will it always be this way? What does the future of payments hold? To understand the future, it might help to understand more about how payments are processed today. In May 2018, I was at the Payments Canada Summit, and I interviewed four people about the future of payments. So what I didn't realize when I decided to do the interviews outside was that there would be so many large trucks passing by and braking during the interviews. So just a heads up about that, and my apologies if sometimes it's hard to hear what we're saying. My first guest is Sue Whitney, Head of Industry Relations for Payment Canada. Since most everyone I know has no idea what Payments Canada is or what they do, I asked Sue to break it down for us. So Payments Canada, think of it as like it's the infrastructure that helps money move between banks at the end of the day. So you might go and make a purchase at a store, but the way the money actually gets to the merchant is because his bank talks to another bank to receive money at the end of the day. And you guys put all the stuff together to, to help them communicate? We, get, we connect all of those bank systems together so that the money moves between the two banks. And then at the end of the day, that the banks actually settle with their bank, which is our Bank of Canada. Okay, and, and why can't they just connect themselves? Well, you kind of need a system that connects and plugs in banks together to each other. And sure. you need some standards and some rules to make sure that the money actually moves the way you want it to. And we can't trust the banks to make their own rules, right? <laughs> I don't know about that. What I do know is actually banks love us because we mm. establish the clear rules of the road. Okay, so they, everybody knows how it works. And so we don't have funny hiccups or payments that don't arrive or big debates at the end of the day about who owes what to the other guy because we've set the rules and the processes so it all runs pretty smoothly. And are you a government entity? So we're created by legislation in Parliament. Okay. We are not a regulator per se. We make the rules and the standards for how people use our systems. Okay. But we do it in a way that the Bank of Canada and the Department of Finance want it to happen so that we're an engine of efficiency for the economy. And the Bank of Canada, is that is that a, a bank as we think of banks being? Like, you know, I'm looking at the BMO Tower right okay. now. Yeah, so, no, the Bank of Canada is the central bank. So it's really a bank for banks. Okay. Uh, it's also the organization that sets our interest rates, for and example. they print the money? They print the yeah. money. They manage our money supply. <laughs> Perfect. And establish the value of the dollar. And so mm. they have a big role in our economy generally. And one of the roles they normally play is they help the money movement between the banks. In this case, the Bank of Canada created us to, with the Department of Finance, they created us to actually be an execution arm of that function. So it's, it's really good to have you guys around. You're, you're basically protecting our money. We are absolutely protecting your money and transactions mm -hmm. and the way that money moves across the country. So it's kind of like the grease in an engine in a lot of ways, because if you made a payment to somebody and it doesn't actually get there, then you might not be able to buy your house or have your credit card bill paid on time or pay somebody in a store 
by tapping your credit card, for example. Mm -hmm. All those payments, all that money, has to actually move between banks. And we just take for granted that that happens. Right, and that's a good thing. Automatically, yeah, if now we do. If people don't know who we are, that means everything's working beautifully. That's a good, that's a good point. <laughs> and so we're at the, the summit, the annual yes. Payments Canada Summit. So what, what is this summit all about and, and why, well, who attends this summit and why are people coming to it? Right, so the summit is the annual conference that we run. The reason we run it is because our whole economy depends on payments working. Mm -hmm. And so what we do is bring together once a year all the users of our systems so that could include financial institutions, but it's also small businesses and big corporations and governments and people who need to know that their money's gonna move and wanna understand how we're thinking about innovation and how it can help them. Yeah, I was uh, at a small business, uh, small to medium enterprise, I guess, uh, uh, session yesterday, yeah. and they were talking about the reason why we still have checks. Yes. And uh, part of it was because of the CRA because people think that the CRA still needs that. And then the CRA guy stood up at the back of the room and got in on the conversation. That's great. <laughs> so yeah. you don't ever expect the CRA to be there, but they come too. Right. right. Yeah, it, and that's the whole intention, right? Is if we're going to get this right as a country, we need everybody to talk to each other. How yes. do you want to pay? How do you want to get paid? Where is there friction in the way you have payments today? And how can we make that better? And to be able to bring everyone into one building once a year and check on how we're doing means we're just going to keep getting better. Yeah, and, and 2018, everyone keeps telling me this is a pivotal year because all the technologies and everything is coming together and everyone's been kind of trying out a bunch of things and maybe now they're ready to go forward. Yeah. It's an incredibly exciting time in payments. I know not everybody thinks about payments every day. <laughs> I do. Uh, but there's two things happening in payments right now. The first one is that consumers are expecting things immediately. Sure. Like I want to be able to walk into a coffee shop. I have pre-ordered for my coffee and I can pick it up and walk out the That's door. That's right. I can hop in an Uber. I don't have to pay anybody and I get to my destination. Automatic. So it's this instant automatic satisfaction without having to actually think about paying for things, that's a consumer expectation. Mm -hmm. At the same time, we have incredible change in technology and we're able to do things that we could never have done five or 10 years ago. Just think about the power in your cell phone. That same kind of incredible growth is happening in payments core, core computer systems, core technology that's allowing us to think about the possibilities of doing things differently. So there's demand for change and there's capacity for change. And so we're using those two forces to smash together to say, okay, how do we modernize the systems that we operate and actually make payments better? So we, the technologies like the blockchain or new payment rails, yeah. uh, however the, the money travels right now, it's like it's getting a total upgrade. That's correct. We are looking at ways to up our safety and soundness, mm -hmm. to uh, defend against cyber attacks if they ever happen to occur in Canada, to deliver things faster, to be able to have a bigger message so that you can tell the story about a payment when it arrives. I like that one because right now, I mean, sometimes you can't even tell what a transaction is when right. you're looking at it. It just says transfer or something. Right. And wouldn't it be great if it actually had as much data as we wanted in there? Right. It would tell me everything. So, so I'll give you two great examples sure. of that. The first one is uh, I started to receive a few years ago this check from the government of Canada. And okay. it was a paper check still. And on that check, it simply said $50, Government of Canada. Okay. Nobody ever told me why I was getting $50. <laughs> really? I had no idea. It turns out, because I did some digging, because uh, I kept getting it. I was afraid they were going to come back and take it away. Yeah. And so, so I phoned <laughs> them and I said, okay, what is this thing? It turned out it was a child benefit, but I was only being paid for one person. Oh. Instead, I have three kids and they were only paying me for one. So it was totally confusing. Wow. So, But that's one example of how you could get a payment today. You should be getting more. You don't know what it is. Yeah. That's right. Another example is when today you could get paid, you might get, so if you're a, a small business, say, and you're expecting a check or a payment from somebody for $150. Sure. You A, a check arrives or an e-transfer or whatever arrives and it's for a hundred yeah and no explanation mm. and you're like what's with this 150 what's it for and if 
that message that comes with that payment could say, uh, I'm only paying you $100 because what you sent me was actually damaged. Okay, yeah, so that would all be in the payment itself. Right, like... And whatever way we have to interpret the payment, say our our bank or uh, like Mint or whatever we use might be able to read that. Right. But uh, the technology hasn't... It hasn't got there yet, uh, or it's there, but it's not widely used. Right. So what we're doing is we're building systems that are going to be capable of carrying the context of a payment with the payment message. I like that. So then all together, all in one place. So the confusion. Think about how much time and energy we spend on communicating in other aspects of our life. Well, we don't in payments, Mm. and so this is this is part of what we want to do. Well, that's this all sounds so fantastic. So thanks so much for coming and sitting with me out here uh, in apparently a truck stop and, <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and ex- explaining. Yeah, I think people need to know about Payments Canada it's, and thanks for putting this on. Happy, happy to do so. It's pretty exciting and hopefully people will start to actually notice more efficiency, greater information and just a more satisfying payment experience. I think they will. So Payments Canada is there to keep it all together and make sure everyone is basically following the same rules. Next up is Sam Mulligan from a Montreal company called MobiWave. So MobiWave's vision is to enable you to accept money for anything, anywhere, and from anyone using your phone. Here's Sam to tell you a bit more about MobiWave. So we're MobiWave. We're a uh, fintech startup based in Montreal. And we've developed a payment acceptance solution that enables you to accept payment directly on your phone. It essentially turns a smartphone into a payment terminal. It enables you to accept contactless payment from contactless cards or mobile wallets just using the, the phone itself. So no external hardware, no need for a separate terminal or cables. We provide the solution as a wide label solution to financial institutions, network operators and non-profits, both here in Canada and overseas. And they in turn then provide it to their, their clients. They can be small and medium-sized enterprises, merchants, micro-merchants, or it can be used indeed as a, as a P2P solution. So we're really enabling anybody to accept payment, making that an option for anybody, but really with a bring-your-own-device solution. They can use this on an off-the-shelf smartphone. Uh, we have a, an agreement with Samsung, a global agreement that was announced earlier this year, which enables us to deploy the MobiWave solution on Samsung devices around the world, which is obviously great for us. We've um, projects underway in Australia. We're soon to, to announce something here in Canada. We work with uh, MasterCard in Poland, where they're uh, working with a local acquiring bank and providing a solution to, to merchants there. So really, it's we've reached a point now, I think, in, in the payment landscape where there is a payment solution for everyone. Uh, merchants of all sizes who maybe previously didn't, for whatever reason, adopt a traditional payment solution, be it a cost factor or for practical reasons, now have the option really to accept payment, I mean cashless, contactless payment uh, directly on their phone. So we work with financial institutions, like I said, to provide that. We also collaborate with other payers in the payment field and in the technology field as as well. So for me as a consumer, am I going to be able to see any of this change or is it just going to be like, I'm going to get this app on my phone and your technology is going to be in there somewhere. Yeah, well, that's, that's essentially boiled down to it. That, that's what it's going to be. So we will provide our technology to a bank and a bank will then, with its own branding, uh, provide it to you as, as their customer. So you would, you know, whatever bank you, you, you're with, you will sign up for the service and it's literally a case of down, downloading an application onto your phone and then you can start uh, accepting payments that day. So it's really that kind of solution so the the future of payments is is more instant payments and because everything's already connected and there's sure. already a system to verify everything yeah it's the very fact that it goes straight into your bank account makes it a, a quicker transaction from that point of view it's obviously more flexibility because you're receiving payment at the point of sale or the point of delivery as opposed to being paid at a later date so from 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 your point of view as a as a business person trying to to get paid for the service you provide it's speeding up the whole process and it's providing you greater flexibility as well you don't have to carry around another device you don't have to make a trip to the to the bank to deposit your check or or cash for that matter it's it's giving you a more flexible solution to kind of suit maybe the nature of your business or maybe you're more mobile you're going to be moving around you're not necessarily in a bricks and mortar location so uh that's that's you know another advantage to it My next guest on this episode was my first guest ever on episode one of the Personal Finance Show. Chris Chan is managing principal at a company called Duello. Duello Payments is about automating payments between landlords and tenants. 
Remember the 875 million checks from last year? Too many of those were between tenants and landlords. Chris has a mission to change that and bring the payments online. Dolo Score is the upcoming innovative scoring platform for landlords, property managers. It's more accurate than a simple credit report. Did you know that credit reports don't even include renting history? I paid someone rent every month for the last 15 years, and there's no record of this. It seems ridiculous, and it should be something that a landlord can look up as easily as your credit card history. Chris is working on that. It was great to meet up with Chris a year later to get an update on Duolo score and payments and to hear his concerns about the best way to step into the future of payments without giving up too much of our personal information along the way. So I think the biggest thing about SCORE is that we're an immigrant country. Like we have a lot of people that are coming over. There's a lot of students that are just starting their life and they don't have credit scores. It's always a landlord's problem when they're going to rent out to somebody who doesn't necessarily have a great credit score or, or no non-existent record on the credit score. But they've since recuperated or now they have money uh, like, or they're getting paid by their parents to come over here to fund their education and fund their living. Uh, and when you have like, those assets that are coming in, there's nothing that just a plain old credit bureau will be able to get to you. So the idea of the score is to provide an additional set of variables that you can essentially perform metrics on and score somebody on so that you can give more information, more accurate information to the landlord, depending on the cost of your unit, to determine if a person's the best fit for you. So I think it does both sides. It prevents people that are professional tenants, people that want to skip out on you and squatters, you know, and squatters that want to like cause you trouble, uh, people that move a whole bunch of times or don't seem to pay rent ever. You'll be able to see that kind of thing. But it also allow, it opens up the market to people that might not have a credit score in the system, but they have a good job and they're doing okay and they, or they have a huge chunk of change that they're sitting on that they can afford, you know, six, seven, one year's uh, worth of rent without any problems. So it opens the door for that. And the idea is, is that it, we want it to be practically instant, like three to five minutes um, while you're sitting there doing the application do your employment check, do your income check, and as well make sure that it wasn't, you know, you're not spending too much money. And then you can hopefully at that point be able to secure your unit without ever having to leave the, uh, the property manager's office. That's awesome. So Duolo score is a different kind of score and, and then the payment side of paying your rent differently, that's, that's still going on. That's still going on. So we're looking to implement a few new methods of payment in addition to just straight bank transfer. We're obviously still keeping our eye out on crypto. We'll see if anybody ends up uh, taking the lead and becoming uh, something useful that they can use crypto for. And then yeah, the payments have been automated and everybody loves it so far. So. so so right now you're still running on like the Canadian old school way of like transferring money, right? Like. Like, uh, typically, how does someone pay their rent? Is it with an EFT or...? Well, yeah, it's uh, a lot of people use, uh, like, yeah, it's, it's EFTs-based. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, that, that's not, it's not instant. It's not instant. It will be, but when EFTs start launching end of this year, uh, which is very exciting for us because that's a two-hour settlement, uh, and when EFTs become uh, um, instantaneous or real-time, uh, I think end of next year, uh, that's their timeline. Then that's way more. That's far more exciting for us, and then it's far more exciting for the property managers as well. And that's that's where that's where payments is heading. So it, it's going to just get quicker and quicker. And then what about other things like uh, that we're hearing about the future of payments, like including different information in a payment? Is this kind of stuff going to be important for you? Like uh, like you know being able to to actually get all the information by looking at a payment. I think that there's good and bad parts about it. It's, it's one of those things that if, you, if you're putting a lot of effort and time into uh, attaching data points to, to a payment, I think that, at least in Canada, there's a lot of privacy concerns about how people are going to end up using that data, how that data could be stolen, how that data is secured and stored. It's one of those things that somebody can build a massive profile on you. 
Now, granted, organizations such as us, um, we're already doing that data attachment, so any, which is actually important because right now, if, as you're processing checks and doing EFTs, if you're doing that on your own, uh, it doesn't necessarily tie down to something that's physical or like one particular unit, one particular tenant, one particular anything else. But I think that that's something that it shouldn't necessarily be attached to the payment on the bank side of things. I think third-party people who are, are specific to what you were uh, transacting for, that those types of data points are the ones that are uh, that are going to stick around to get get kept. What you what you bought, maybe where of course where you bought stuff from, and how much obviously and when. Those are going to always be data points that are uh, that are attached. But I don't think what exactly did you buy. You know what color you those. I don't think that stuff like that. The data points are that important. But for you, like, wouldn't having a lot of information about who rents what and what you know, uh, you know demographics and like you said, it, how what the percentage are immigrants or new Canadians? Wouldn't that help your business develop? Of course, this this type of data is would, but I mean, it has to be that information has to be voluntary. It has to be volunteered. Okay. I don't think that this information should be. You know, well, in order for you to make this payment, you gotta tell us where you're from, who your parents are, what color car you drive, yeah, okay. and all the all the other things. Because we're already living in a world where privacy is a concern; it's an issue. We had that major Equifax breach, where mm-hmm. God knows how much information is stored at the at these bureaus who have been entrusted to store our financial and personal information. We're entrusting these people to store our information, and when you have one rogue player, one contractor who happens to be have high level database access to be able to gut the database or uh, have a le- have a leak somehow because of outdated security software you're at risk for a lot of this data so, so we're never going to be hitting a point then where like because everyone's information is stored somewhere right right like you know either well equifax so like you said mm-hmm. in the credit credit bureaus or at a bank or whatever so it's never going to be like somebody can look up all your information because they got a payment from you that would be a little bit too far. Well, obviously, this and also like having all that detail. Yeah, and 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 having one agency have all this power. Like, for example, if Payments Canada were the, the facilitator of moving that much data from one place to another, especially if it's all this demographic information and data, then I think that that's too much. If it's okay. volunteered information, saying like, for example, you look at uh, a lot of points programs, right? A lot of points programs. They're putting in demographics. They're putting in like what you bought and all these things. But That's you're volu- you're volunteering this information. Yeah, they would ask you those questions. Right. Yeah. They're, they're gonna say you're gonna tell us exactly what you bought, where you bought it. You know, you go shop at Metro. You do you go, go buy gas at Shell. If you're mm-hmm. volunteering all this information as a method of okay, now a rewards program like Air Miles or Aeroplan can take this information and then monetize the corporations to advertise more relevant ads to you. I think that, of course, that makes sense. Do people know that? Do you think people know that when they're using a rewards card, they're actually collecting all that data? Is that a common thing? I feel, I hope it is. I hope it is, but I know that a lot of people don't read the fine print. Uh, A lot of people don't necessarily pay attention. A lot of people don't care. Like, there's a lot of, a, a lot of people are around saying, you know, I have nothing to hide. I'm like, okay, well, I mean, you should always have the option to hide it. Yeah. But you, we always have the option to not subscribe to a rewards card, right? If you're making a payment, if you're just making a regular car payment and you don't want to opt into uh, providing all this data, you should be able to opt out of it. So, so, like, you know, when my bank is categorizing my purchases right now, especially to get rewards if it's a credit card, yeah, like, should I assume that that's all being collected too for use in some, well, not nefarious way, but in some way to help promote to me? I, I think when the, when the banks do it for your checking and savings account, yeah. I think that actually is... That's um, internal? That's internal. Because okay. um, infor- getting that information shared from one institution to another or to third-party advertisers... I think that that's um, that, that's a breach if they're doing it. Okay. Um, but I, I I strongly don't think that they're doing it. But when their affiliated card networks like Visa, Mastercard, and other companies that are using and categorizing it, they're helping. Like they 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 are masking it as a tool for you to help you spend better and spend wiser and uh, know where your money is going. 
but also deliver you more relevant ads because that's, I think, as a part of rewards programs and a lot of these credit cards, it makes sense. It makes sense. So, yeah, what do you think about the future of crypto? Cryptocurrencies uh, or, like, just in general? I think that the idea of cryptocurrency, it needs to, at some point, it doesn't necessarily have to be tied down to a country. There, at some point in the future, I strongly believe that there will be a, a world currency of some form, okay. and it will be living like, you know, it'll be it'll be crypto in a sense that it lives on the blockchain. I think blockchain, the applications of blockchain are far more uh, reaching than just currency. The way that it's being traded around and the word that's being thrown around, it's abuse of power essentially. Okay. To get all these investors jumping on this quote unquote trend when we know it's the future but it's being applied very wrong right now it's like buying something for the hope that tomorrow somebody else will buy it for more that's a definition of an asset but assets at least in stocks and are based upon physical like profits or uh, how a company is doing not just the idea of something some kind of operations or at least based in like gold or something yeah or something tangible something tangible that somebody at some point ends up buying so this is a, this is investing in an idea yeah just like despite the flat fact that the blockchain is there it's it's uh, not necessarily gonna the importance of the blockchain you're saying is not necessarily for like cryptocurrencies well it's the, the blockchain is much more far-reaching than just currency it's information it's information it's uh, it's um, irrefutable um, contracts between one party and another it's traceability. It's it's a lot of great things. The distrib- distributed uh, ledger, the distributed information. Yeah, security. So it's security because it's now in, now that information is heavily secured and it's everywhere. So you don't have to break into something to get it, but you have to like it's practically impossible to decrypt the stuff unless you have the key. Mm-hmm. So that in itself is that kind of security that I think that that's our future. Right, we because we're uh, we no longer have the Equifaxes of the world having security breaches, but with unsecured data behind some false firewall, we now have encrypted currency distributed everywhere that everybody has, and the the idea of it is that it's secure, so you don't have to break through. The, the, breaking through a firewall means you have to have the key. Period. Yeah, that's it. exactly. And and this, yeah, it's almost. It's almost impossible. Nothing's impossible, but it's uh, it's close too. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the most uh, the most pressing thing is now that uh, Google's uh, apparently created the first uh, quantum computer. Okay. Uh, so that elevates uh, the level of computing power by factor of a lot. It reduces the workloads for um, simple mathematics, which everything we have to uh, a fraction of what it used to. Mm. So the most important thing is, uh, I think, for crypto to catch up is to make sure that their keys are now quantumly secured. So uh, it would take a quantum computer or multiple quantum computers, still tens or twenties or millions of years to break codes by um, brute force. So the future, the future of payments and the future of all this it seems to be speed, increased speed, yep. increased security, hopefully. Yep. And like maybe like transmitting data uh, in a more secure way, but and more of it, but like hopefully with the option for privacy too. Yeah, and I think <laughs> I think that right now we're standing in a in a spot where we have these major players who are still responsible for changing a number on one computer and moving it to another computer. Yeah. And there's a lot of fees and interchange uh, revolved around moving bits of electrons around. The hope is, and we were just at a keynote where they're talking about, you know, instant, uh, invisible, and free payments from uh, peer-to-peer. I still think that's the future. Uh, I I understand why these archaic systems are still around. That's not the case now, but I mean, it's... It's the future. I believe that moving a bit from one place to the other should be as simple as pressing a keystroke on your internet browser on, on some website somewhere. That, that's it. That's our future. It's going to be that easy. Yep. And the, the information and the information and the analytics that are going to be around it, that you voluntarily supply, and the analytics around all that, that's where the money's going to be. Last but definitely not least, I have Lawrence Cook 
CEO and founder of NanoPay. In 2016, NanoPay bought a digital cash platform called Mintchip from the Royal Canadian Mint. Lawrence will explain the benefits of digital cash, but first he's got a great story about how messed up our current system is and why. Yes, I've been in tech. I was in telecom before. And when I was in telecom, I saw lots of terrible payment experiences. Okay. And the real thing there is you, you end up with someone on the end of the phone that is at a service turned off, whether it's the internet or their mobile phone, and they're desperate to have it turned back on. Yeah. But you can't turn it back on until they've paid you. The verified um, payment. The verified payment. Oh, man. And that can take days. And that's the most yeah. frustrating thing for them and for us. I mean, you want to take their payment and put their service on so they can carry on using it, but it would take days. But let me start off with a story that actually happened after we started the business, which really just epitomizes the problems with, with, uh, with payments today. Okay, so you had already acquired Mintchip? At the same time that we acquired Mintchip, we also did our Series A. Okay. And our Series A was led by Goldman Sachs in the Merchant Banking Division. And they knew that we needed to get the funds that day to pay for Mintchip. So we're trying to do the financing <laughs> and the funding on the same day. So they sent the wire twice. And they sent the wire twice through two different routes. But they didn't tell me that they'd send it twice. So we get the first uh, group of funds and we close the transaction and we buy Mintchip and we're all good. And then half an hour later, a bank calls me and says... Actually, we received a second payment. Oh, my God. So I said, okay, I don't know what that's about, but I assume it's a, a mistake. Can you send it back? <laughs> right? And it's for the same amount. So I, I, yeah. clearly, it's, it's a mistake. Uh, I send it back immediately. And so the transaction is concluded. So it's a new transaction to send it back in the same direction. But they got the payment credential on both sides. So it shouldn't be that difficult, right? Okay. So the next day, the Goldman guys call me and they're like, Phew, that was uh, like hard work, great job, closing everything. You know, we did send the payment a second time because we were worried that we didn't get the money. And, um, but uh, we haven't received the money back. So I joked with them and I said, oh, I thought the second one was for my personal account. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know? Um, and like, oh, they had this uncomfortable chuckle and then I'm like, look, I'm kidding. I sent the money back yesterday, don't worry. So they said, okay, well, we haven't received it. So I said, oh, no problem, I'm sure it'll, t- it'll turn up. So a week later, they still haven't got the money. Oh, so then man. they call up and they say, you sure you did send it? So I'm like, so then I go and dig out the paperwork and I send it to them and I can see these guys thinking, maybe he wasn't joking about his personal account. <laughs> maybe we've invested in this guy that's just stolen well, all this money. What if it was people that you didn't, yeah. didn't know or like, yeah. you know, were sort of loosely associated And this guy hasn't sent the money back to us. He's stashed it somewhere or something awful. So now I'm going over and, uh, over and above like, to try and prove that I actually sent the money. So we start trying to investigate from our end. They're trying to investigate from their end. And we literally could not find out where the money was. Really? The money was missing. It had gone our end and was not received their end. And we're, we're probably we're talking like millions here? Or? Yeah, we're talking yeah. multiple millions. Yeah. And it's just sending from Toronto to New York. And eventually, at 10 days, the money turned up and they went, phew. And only then could they see that I actually did send it on the day that I said I sent it. So why did it take so long? Did you find it got, out? It got lost in the correspondent banking network because it had changed currency. And it was a simple wire payment and it should have turned up, but it just didn't. What happens is sometimes wire payments, when they're going from one platform to another, they just get lost somewhere in the ecosystem. And some bank was sitting on it. And we still, to this day, don't even know where it was. So it's just, is, were the banks just built in this sort of haphazard way? Well, or, no. So the whole, technology? Well, the whole background to correspondent banking is it, it worked perfectly in a paper way, right? Okay. So in a paper okay. world, some other bank in a foreign country holds your bank's money so that if you need to make a, so let's just say you're a bank in Canada yeah. and you're a customer of a bank in Canada and yeah. you want to make a payment in the UK. Sure. Then if you're, say, RBC, RBC has money sitting in a Barclays account in the UK. So when they want to do a payment, when you want to do a payment to the UK, you give the payment details, let's say it's at NatWest Bank, to your bank in Canada, to RBC. RBC, effectively, in the old days, used to pick up the phone or send a bit of paper or send a, a, a telegram to say, please pay this other bank this amount. Okay, and so they take money out of your account, that is the bank's account in the UK, and send it to the other bank. So it's already set up that way, and, and people would expect it to take... Yeah. Some time. And it would expect to take that uh, some time. Now, the SWIFT, which is the payment message, mm-hmm. is just the messaging component. It's only settled days later. So, uh, you know, one to three days later, the actual payment settled. And sometimes the sending bank waits for the payment to settle before they do the next leg because they don't want to get into a situation where they're providing the other banks too much credit because that's risky for them. And who knows what if the bank goes bust. So the larger the payments, the bigger this issue is. Okay. And sometimes the payments are so big they just have to wait until all the banks settle to make sure that there's enough money to actually pay out. So it's this crazy, archaic system. And they've literally got trillions of dollars 
sitting in trapped capital just, all around the world, waiting to make foreign to payments. Go. Oh, so like, yeah, so they could be investing that money or doing something, lowering our, lowering our fees. Exactly. <laughs> so, so, well, there are three elements to this from a bank's perspective. Sure. So if you know, you're a consumer, you go to the bank, you want to send money to the States, you, you're horrified by how bad the rate is that you get. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you why. The first thing is your bank in Canada has already got the money sitting in the U.S. Okay. But they paid a certain price for that, right? So they've already pre-purchased that. If the U.S. dollar goes down to the Canadian dollar, then the balance sheet of the Canadian bank goes down. So that's bad for them, right? Yeah. So they take currency risk. The second thing is there are 14,000 banks in the U.S. That's so a lot of banks. You can't have money sitting in 14,000 banks. So, uh, and if you did, you'd take credit risk, and credit mm. risk is expensive as well. If you don't, it's got to go multiple hops, which means you send it from one bank, and one bank sends it to another bank, and maybe even a third hop before it gets there. And they all have different systems, so it might be manually rekeyed. A lot of those have manual intervention. Then there could be something wrong with the data set that they provided, in which case a fraud flag goes up, and everyone panics, and you start phoning around and getting more data, and it can take a while. But also that means more mouths to feed, and it's just got to take longer. So it's more expensive and it takes longer. And then the third thing is that when you actually give your customer a rate, you kind of know where the currency is at the time that you give the rate, but you have to give a big spread because you actually only settle the transaction overnight, which could be up to 24 hours later. Yeah. And the currency could move between them. So you've got to give yourself enough room to make sure that you're not out of the money by the time you settle. So by definition, the bank has to give you a bad rate. They can't have, there's no other alternative. They have to give you a widespread, which means they have to give you a bad rate. And all I want to do is pay my friend back for the concert tickets. Exactly. The $100, exactly. say US, and yeah. I'm in Canada. Yeah. And all of this is going on yeah. behind the scenes. And so what is your technology doing to fix this kind of thing? Yeah, so, or how is it different? Yeah, so we have a digital fiat currency. And let me go into that a little bit. Firstly, uh, fiat is uh, money that is backed by a central bank. So Canadian dollars in Canada, US dollars in the US, sterling in the UK, okay. Euro in Europe, right? So it's backed by a central bank. Those are all fiat currencies. And what we want to do is create a digital fiat. And a digital fiat is the same as the paper money in that it is an electronic risk-free claim against the central bank. You just don't have to print the money. You just don't have to print the money. And Instead, you, we, di- we digitize it. And it's on your phone and or, it's, or, exactly. some, or somewhere well, it's else. Or sits in the cloud. Yeah, so it's in the cloud. But yeah. You access it with probably your phone or your computer. Correct. Whatever you have. And you okay. can do that in real time. Yes. And if you want to make a payment long distance, it's kind of difficult to do that with paper money. You it have to really put it in is. the mail, right? Yeah. Or jump on I a plane. I wouldn't recommend that. Yeah, or no. jump on a plane and physically deliver it. <laughs> That's right. Which might actually still be the quickest way to move money without our platform. <laughs> yeah. So as an alternative, we digitize the money and we say digital Canadian dollars in Canada and digital US dollars in the US. And then the banks settle in real time on our platform. So there's no, cre- there's no settlement risk anymore. So they can afford to give you a better rate. At the same time, they can guarantee their margin because they can say this is what the currency is at right now. And this okay. is the margin. So they can guarantee their margin and put it in their back pocket rather than taking risk every time they do a transaction. They don't have to keep holding the foreign currency like yeah, they Yeah, they don't to. have to hold the foreign currency. They hold it in their, in their home currency. Don't yes. You? So the Canadian bank holds it in Canadian dollars. And it's because of the speed of the transaction Yes, and then we, then we actually do the transaction in real time. So they're not taking any credit risk with the other bank. And they're not taking any currency risk. And they're also not taking any settlement risk. Globally, it costs banks $180 billion a year to send money over correspondent banking. 180 billion. Why does it, like, it shouldn't cost money to send money. I know, yeah, I know but it that's has what it to. Banks. I know it costs money. Yeah. But it should be, yeah, I don't know. I, I just, my instinct is that it shouldn't be this way. This isn't the same as what cryptocurrencies are trying to do. No, it's not. Because we're not trying to make up a currency. And we're yeah. not going in and out of a made up currency. You're just changing the format of our existing currency. You're not trying to make it so that it's not connected to a government or not backed by anything. Correct. So why wouldn't the cryptocurrencies uh, win in this situation? Like why, why would people, I know, I understand why people would choose the government backed because that's what they want. But what are the flaws in the fiat currency that are making us want to go digital, which is the same, I guess, as the cryptocurrencies reason for being? Yeah, so, you know, I think there are a few things. Firstly, uh, a lot of cryptocurrencies use blockchain technology. Okay. And despite what the best pundits might say, it can never and will never scale. And that's for a few reasons. The first thing is, you know, if you look at Bitcoin alone, uh, it uses enough energy to, you know, I don't know, provide uh, energy for a couple of big cities already. I've been thinking about this while I wrote uh, an article on on, uh, cryptocurrency, and... 
it took two hours for me, maybe more, for me to get a transaction through. Yeah. And like when I think about something that's digital, like like what you're doing, I think fast and exactly. it should be cheap. But you said the energy, so people are mining with these like what webs of computers. Exactly. And it's it's using so much energy that it's going to destroy us. Yeah. So that's, the the energy cost alone oh. makes it. Uh, impossible to actually do a low-cost payment. In fact, in January this year, Bitcoin took fast and cheap payments off their website. So even Bitcoin doesn't claim to be fast and cheap anymore. So wait, what's the benefit? And that's because they are neither. Now? Why? What's what are they selling now? Like, what's the benefit of the deregulate the decentralization? Yeah. So you know, if you want to make a payment that you don't want anyone to find out about, I think Bitcoin's attractive. If you want to, <laughs> if you want to pay someone in a nefarious situation, that makes sense. But if you look at the uh, the laws just about everywhere in the world, it's actually illegal to pay someone you don't know and don't trust. So, so basically, all that's left is the illegal stuff. All the stuff that was the benefit, like you know, you don't have to. Well, pay fees and it's quicker, which is what I thought they were started with. And, and the, the underlying problem there is that a lot of the cryptocurrencies have actually used the underlying uh, crypto to grease the wheels of the platform. So in Bitcoin's case, you mine it to earn Bitcoin. And you get a little tiny and, bit of Bitcoin. And you get a tiny time. bit of Bitcoin. Yeah. But the energy cost of the tiny bit of Bitcoin make Bitcoin so expensive as a transaction platform. At the same time, as the utility increases, say more people accept Bitcoin, yeah. the value of Bitcoin goes up. And when the value of Bitcoin goes up, the costs of a Bitcoin transaction also go up. Which means if you're going to pay 50 bucks to get a cup of coffee, it doesn't make sense to use Bitcoin. No. It's going to take an hour, right? Yeah, they're not going to be it's able going to, to be expensive. transaction. Yeah. So what, are you going to wait for an hour before you can take you drink your coffee? That's this is just so ridiculous to me. So Because every, everyone would think digital currency, they think cryptocurrency. That's what they yeah. think. But they're, they're just like very, very different in terms of they want to be almost nefarious is, what, is where everything's heading. And the energy thing just gets me so much. Yeah. So you guys, you're not doing this. even So you don't need to mine. Nobody needs to. Correct. Be, because it's not a, um, it's in a distributed network. Though. So the, the interesting thing is it, our platform is distributed and we do have an immutable ledger. And our immutable ledger proves with certainty that all the transactions have indeed happened. And then people but, would avoid the, the double uh, wire situation yeah, that you had. Exactly. Because it happened, That's there clear, it is, there. you can read it. You exactly. can look at it, somebody can look at it anyway, yes. the two parties. Okay, Correct. so, so you, you have the, the, the core things. And, but what we don't have is the consensus and we don't have the mining. And those are the expensive things in the ecosystem that make it unscalable. Why, does, why do cryptocurrencies need consensus versus, say, why doesn't yours? Well, if you want it to be open, then yeah. the only way to prove that things are correct is to do consensus. And, and if you, you want it closed or permissioned, then you don't need the consensus, I see. but you still need some other mechanism. But then it's by invitation only. So what's your mechanism? So our mechanism is uh, we do these complex atomic transactions where you can't initiate a payment unless you actually have the value. That's the first thing. Sure. There's no possibility of doing double spend, and we use crypto to ensure that. Okay. Um, cryptography. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Cryptography. Sorry. <laughs> uh, and and the third thing is we move value from one entity to the other in real time in a complex atomic transaction. And because it's atomic, there's no possibility of anyone intercepting that value. What does atomic mean in this context? Atomic means that the, the transaction happens but without even going out of memory. So if you look, look at a, you know, a credit card payment today, mm-hmm. it goes through multiple different loops and Absolutely. it takes a long time. So it's being written to disks all over the place and you can intercept the data or try and make another credit card transaction with that. In our environment, you can't do that because you have to have access, which requires a private key, to get to the uh, account in the first place. What's happening when I see when I see pending on a trend? So they, they know that I spent my money on my credit card right away because yep. they, they, they can't let me go yep. over my limit. Yep. But it says pending. So what... What is all this complex stuff happening behind the scenes? And that's because it hasn't been written to the ledger. And when you do a credit card transaction, that creates a, uh, a credit risk per, a relationship between the merchant yeah. and the merchant's bank, yeah. between the merchant's bank and the uh, customer's bank, and between the customer's bank and the customer. So much going on. And, and so, because I, I haven't uh, technically paid for it yet. Actually, I, I won't pay for it till I pay my bill. Correct. Right. Correct. But I haven't taken the loan out from the credit card technically until it's cleared. Correct. And then the merchant doesn't technically have it until that's cleared. But then they don't even get it until however many days later. Correct. Too. There's so much time lag and it's costing everybody money. So there's time, which is one component. There's also so much opportunity for fraud in that ecosystem. 
because there's so many disparate parties involved in the transaction. So in our world, this is an atomic transaction that happens in real time. No wow. opportunity for someone to get involved or get in the middle or perpetrate a fraud. You can't do the transaction if you don't have the value. So there's no like credit risk in anywhere in our ecosystem. And when you get the value, it's always in good funds. And you said that you've done many, many transactions so far yeah. in the last, what, two, three years? Yeah, so we've been live since June 2016. And uh, your, your rate of, well, I guess, fraud or, or like so we've transactions had, errors is so very, we've very, had very low? No, uh, we've had no fraud inside no fraud. our ecosystem at all, not it's, one penny. it's really, it's not possible, technically? <laughs> Look, Everything's you know, possible. Everything's but. possible and <laughs> everything can get hacked. Uh, our platform is designed to be hacked. Mm, okay. um, it's, it's also designed to notice when something strange is going See, on. See, that's good. I like and that. And then it automatically shuts down. On any of the related uh, secure asset stores, which is where we hold the value. And then, and then, because of the way that it's all set up, if somebody's doing a transaction, everything just kind of cancels itself. Yeah, everything stops, and you can't do any transactions until we find out what's working. And, it's, on. and because it's atomic, as you said, nothing can really get caught in Correct. the flow. Correct. Like There's nothing waiting or pending or in the flow, or yeah, you, you're taking the same amount out twice, which happens in banks all the time. So, in terms of payment methods, I was around back in the day when there was uh, this thing called Dexit. Yeah. It was somebody had to have the terminal, and I had this chip that I put money on, and like it didn't just didn't work out because people. I just feel like they didn't sell it well, and maybe it wasn't efficient. Why now? Why is this all happening now that this is possible? And sorry, what applications of, of NanoPay, which is your company, yeah. will, will the consumer be able to see like now or soon? Yeah, so it's uh, so a good, good question on Dexit. So Dexit, fabulous technology, and ironically, David Everett and Debbie Gamble, who are both uh, instrumental in creating the Mintchip platform, were also instrumental in creating Dexit. They had to learn from somewhere, Yeah, right? so they've done this before. Sure. Um, I think the biggest issue with Dexit is acceptance and the the terminal side of the acceptance was way ahead of its time and okay. it was so as a result it was super expensive and difficult to do oh i see so you know if you try to do dexit again now with all of the chip and pin terminals out there ready sure you could use the existing infrastructure well, it does and exist. achieve dexit it's, it's tap now like correct. tap is basically correct. what dexit was trying to be correct. it was just way sooner than it should have been yeah so you know basically i think they were ahead of their market the second thing is that the internet is now ubiquitous and the third thing i'd say is the cryptography has come a long way so crypto was uh, previously very pro-intensive and even uh, in, in our platform when we do an offline transaction which is when we need to use the most crypto the crypto overhead uses 99% of our CPU cost so I wanted to ask you about an offline transaction what what exactly does that mean how can someone yeah can you take us through the steps of like two, yeah. two people um, I'm paying somebody some money using say uh, would you be the back-end technology of another product or would it be like a nano pay app yeah, so it, it could be either. You know, the first thing is our strategy is not to create a consumer brand. Okay, yeah. Okay. So consumers shouldn't see day-to-day when they're using us, but if they have a fantastic experience and it's really quick, it's, it's probably, probably us in the background. <laughs> okay. So, uh, so we're not trying to create a consumer brand. And you could experience it today if you used our Mintchip application. It's available in Liberty I, Village. Yeah, I looked it up. I didn't, uh, I didn't know who uh, somebody has to accept that at a time. Yeah, and in right? Liberty Village, there are a whole bunch of restaurants and other places that accept it. And most days I buy my lunch using that platform. Okay, of course. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, and it's great. And we launched that just to show that our technology works. Because you need to earn yeah, your stripes you have to, before you can sell your technology to sure. banks and central banks. So now other banks will start to implement. And so somebody's, exactly. and so now I have like my bank app and somebody else has another one and the same one. And so what are we doing with this offline? Yeah, so offline, let's say you're not connected to the internet, yeah, which right. does happen occasionally. It does, yeah. Not much in Canada because we've got the best uh, wireless networks in the world Pretty in great. Canada. Yeah. But there are circumstances, maybe in the underground, uh, you know, when you underground or when you're in a parking lot or something like that sure. or, yeah, uh, tunnel, or, yeah. or you're in a tunnel yeah, yeah. Uh, on a train or something like that but uh, and you know certainly in an airplane and in those circumstances what we do is instead of having the value in the cloud we actually store the value in a secure element on your physical phone okay or on a smart card like so like like my sim card would yeah be a secure element? so a secure element could be you know on an android phone there's another secure element within the within the device or the sim card the nfc is yeah that what that exactly is? yeah and then we could use nfc to tap two phones together or indeed if we're storing the value on the sim card we can even use uh, a scan of two qr codes 
So they don't even have to be the same. They can be completely different phones. So how does it know though what is happening outside of, of the uh, uh, online when you're offline? Is there any risk there? So there is more risk because you could technically freeze the phone and get into the secure element. That's not an insignificant task. It's, it's quite a lot of work to do that. Okay. So we risk limit it by limiting the value that you can move offline and the number of transactions you can do and the amount that you can hold. Sure. And then we also say after five transactions or ten and we can change that arbitrarily, you have to then go and do an online transaction. Okay. And then we sync it back up with everything else so we can see everything that's gone on. So I'm on And a- only one of the phones needs to sync up. Okay, so I'm on a plane. Yeah. And wow, that's, that's some breaks right there. Yeah. So I'm on a plane and maybe they ex- we find out they accept you know, my, whatever my ability is to communicate in, yeah. the, in the, the digital fiat yeah. way, and, but there's no internet, so I tap with them, and they accept my money. Yeah. Maybe there's a limit of $100 or something. Exactly. And then when we get back in the internet, all those transactions re-upload or reconnect, and that's, that's how it could work. And the exciting thing there is that when, uh, when whoever accepted that money, say the airline, yeah. go, it goes back on, they write the record, and then when you go back online, we check that it's the same. And what would happen if somehow, well, how could it be different? Is yeah, there, so technically it can't be it different, can't, yeah. but if someone hacked the phone and tried to create a transaction that's that right. didn't exist, and it would come on, it would say, aha, it's not the same. So there's totally yeah. traceable stuff here. Absolutely. It's not, it's not like somebody... And then we know where it originated, right? Yeah. And say, so, okay, that's not happening. It's like when they hack it, they can't possibly hack and change, like, everything. So they would just know something's different, and then that would be sort of And invalid. straight away, you would see, oh, hold on, this has not been signed by the right party. This is an invalid transaction. Yeah. And you'd know who they made a transaction to. So you're putting yourself So then yourself you can follow up and yeah. say, oh, we'll take that money back. Yeah, okay. So there, it's it's way more traceable and that kind of stuff. So. Exactly. Okay, well, this is all very enlightening for me today. <laughs> today, you know, I listened to the podcast that you're on, and it's just... You know, I didn't really know that this was going to be the future. Everyone's talking about cryptocurrency, and of course, everyone taps with the existing network, and it seems fast, but this is going to be safer and faster and, and cheaper for everyone. Much right? cheaper. And, you know, I think the, the opportunity is by doing something so much cheaper, you can transform your relationship with your customers because then you can afford to reward them so much better than, say, a credit card or something like that, that, you know, it has to reward you out of the, uh, the huge spend that they're charging to the merchant. You think maybe our bank fees will go down? I certainly hope so. I, I hope so too. If bank costs go down, bank fees should go down. That, well, that's the logic. Yeah. But <laughs> banks yeah. have a mind of their own sometimes, right? Well, you know, I think, uh, I think in uh, full transparency, uh, you know, you'll be able to see that uh, that's right. you're, getting a, you're getting something better and it should be, it should be cheaper and sh- we should pass on the benefit. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. Okay, well, thanks so much, Lawrence. Thank you. Thanks for coming on the show. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It would mean a lot to me, and it only takes a few seconds. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Personal Finance Show. Next week's guest will be Mark Podolsky, also known as The Land Geek. 